In the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation, the Apostle John records the staggering vision he was given into the very throne room of heaven. And in that place, all those familiar and popular notions of God, those ideas of God as simply the the man upstairs or the CEO of heaven, or the president of the universe are completely exploded as the ridiculously trivial concepts that they truly are. For what John sees is God as he really is, a being of breathtaking beauty, of staggering majesty, of stunning wisdom, An entity so brilliantly holy, so infinitely powerful, so shockingly good that every other majestic being in heaven can think of no other vocation so worthy as to spend all of their eternity on their faces before his throne. Singing songs of praise to his glory. In the light of this God... Everything else that has been said in the book of Revelation up to this point makes even greater sense. All of those words of comfort and of challenge that Jesus has has given to the representative seven churches of, of the world suddenly makes even greater sense. For, of course, the Christians in Ephesus and elsewhere will want to return to the passion of their very first love for God as they catch a vision of the amazing love of God for humankind. And of course, the Christians in Smyrna will want to to, to remain faithful to God even in the midst of, of persecution and suffering when they catch a glimpse of His faithfulness and of what He has prepared for them in the world that is to come. And when you understand what what God show John of his purity and his wisdom. It is clear why it is only natural for the churches to to rededicate themselves to pursuing his holiness, to seeking after his truth in this life in ever-deepening ways. The more we see of God, the more we are almost helplessly changed in our pursuits and priorities. And if we could catch even a tiny glimpse of what John saw of God's utter integrity of being, we would want our reputation and the inner reality of our lives to line up a whole lot better than they often do. And if we could understand, as John was allowed to to understand, God's passion for the lost of this world and the hurting of this world, then we would rejoice even more than we do in the open doors that God has given us to be part of his outreaching mission in the world. If we could see God 
as John could see him, then we would never again be so lukewarm in our faith, so tepid in our obedience to him in our homes and our workplaces, amongst our social circles. But it is hard to keep the glory of God in our view, isn't it? Every day there are just so many details and demands. So much news and information constantly coming at us that it's very easy once we leave an environment like this to get distracted, to have our view distorted or or darkened. And that is why when we read in Revelation chapter 5 something more about this God, something that is, is so vivid, so particular and simple, that it might actually stay with us even longer than what we've already studied. It pays us to stop and to look carefully at these dimensions of the glorious one. For here we are given two simple but vivid images of God that may live in our mind's eye when even the other sights fade and the distractions dazzle in days to come. Chapter 5 picks up where chapter 4 left off. The scene is, again, the throne room of God. Then, says John, I saw in the right hand of him who sat upon the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, suggesting the weight of the document, and sealed with seven seals. It was the custom in ancient times to take particularly significant documents and after having recorded them on a parchment scroll to wrap them carefully with strings and then to preserve their security, to affix wax seals upon them marked with a signet of some kind, the mark of the authority of the sender of the scroll. And the most important documents of all would be sealed multiple times, as many as seven times, in a particular way that the seals would have to be broken one by one by one, as one unveiled the contents of what lay within. The scroll here signifies God's perfect plan for the world. And in particular, the final days of history. And the seals that are spoken of here are symbolic of the stages of the unfolding of that plan. And an angel cries out at the very sight of that scroll, who is worthy to open it? To the dismay of everyone in heaven, no one is found worthy enough, holy enough, authoritative enough, wise enough to unveil the contents of the scroll. 
And John weeps at that reality. That no one is found to reveal the mysteries of life and to bring to pass the ultimate good that God has intended. And then all of a sudden, someone appears at the throne who is worthy. And he is described, first of all, with a phrase that's taken from an Old Testament prophecy about the coming Messiah. A Messiah who would have the power and the authority to accomplish all of God's purposes. Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. The Lion of Judah is worthy to open the scroll. Do you ever think of Christ in those terms? From my experience, most people don't. If there's a feline image at all for Christ, it's more that of the the Cheshire cat kind, in a way. People sometimes picture Jesus as this wise but somewhat elusive being who who gives us some thoughts to ponder but doesn't make any particularly strident demands upon us. Others picture him as as a gentle creature of sorts, as an invisible but warm and fuzzy and familiar friend who can always be counted upon to just be there when we come home at the end of a long day. And yet in this world where the name of Jesus is is often taken and has developed perhaps an excessive ring of familiarity without a sense of who we are really speaking of. This very title, The Lion of Judah, reminds us that there was a reason why Christ's enemies sought to cage and to kill him. C.S. Lewis helps us to see the truth about the character of Christ in more biblical terms. In his wonderful Chronicles of Narnia series, Lewis pictures Jesus as a great and ferocious lion. He is a creature far too wild to be blithely trifled with and far too wily to be caught in our conventions and caged by our simple concepts, for he watches us from the shadows, even when we're not aware of his presence. And he takes none too kindly to those who threaten his children. And he roars at wrongdoing, and he slashes at sin, and he prowls on padded feet through the jungle of human history. More intensely present than we, than we dare think of. And he prowls just waiting. Waiting, biding his time. Waiting for the perfect moment to overcome his prey. 
And then, the next 14 chapters of Revelation detail how rapaciously and finally and fiercely he accomplishes his purpose. Unless we know this dimension of Christ's nature, unless we rid ourselves of this kitty cat Christianity and face the reality, the lion roars, then we'll never understand the ferocity of what unfolds in these remaining chapters. But there's another reason that we must maintain a view of Christ as the Lion of Judah. It's, it's because only then can we fully appreciate what happens next in this story from Revelation 5. You see, the Apostle John had been told that, that only the lion was worthy enough to open the scroll of God's providence. But when John looked where he expected the lion to appear, there on the throne itself, John says, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne. And strangely, it was this lamb, we're told, adorned with horns that, biblically speaking, always symbolize power and authority, and with eyes that always symbolize spiritual vision. It was this lamb of all creatures that received the scroll and the subsequent worship of all creation. Now this, my friends, is the great mystery and the glorious news at the heart of the Scripture's message. The Lion of Judah, who will reign in absolute power one day, is also the Lamb of God who sacrificed himself in absolute love. And if the gospel was only about a tender love, without the power to bring to pass the great purposes of love, we'd be lost. But if the gospel was, was only about the final victory of a holy power, then all of us would have good reason to be afraid, don't you think? For we are not holy. And who could dare to stand in the presence of the Lion of Judah? But the good news is that the one who holds the power 
does so with hands that are marked by the nail wounds of absolute love. And the miracle that we can never fully take in, but which we must never stop trying to receive more and more, is that the great lion himself made himself a sacrificial lamb to pay the price for our sins. And those of us who have recognized that, both our need before the Holy One and what we have been given by the Tender One, those of us who have given ourselves over to His Lordship in gratitude for His grace have no reason to fear the roar of final justice that is to come. But on the chance that there is even one person within the sound of my voice right now who has not taken hold of that good news personally, let me make one final point and do so with a story. Approximately one century ago, a young man fell in with some very bad associates. Although he had been raised with all of the advantages and the instruction of a fine home, he got involved with a group of friends who seduced him into believing that there was even more wealth to be had and more adventure to be discovered by robbing a bank. While fleeing the scene of that crime, the young man took two gunshots in the back and somehow managed nonetheless to drag himself onto his horse and to gallop away down the street, barely hanging on as he headed toward unconsciousness. A passing stranger witnessed the robbery and saw the injured boy, for that's not more than what he was, really, saw him clinging to the horse and knowing that the wounded young man was almost certain to fall off the bolting animal and probably break his neck, the stranger climbed aboard his horse and rode off after him and overtook the other steed and took the boy into his arms. And like the good Samaritan of old, Jesus' parable, the stranger took the young man home with him and nursed him back to health and sought to set him on a good road. Many years went by, and yet in spite of the grace that he had been shown on the day of that bank robbery, the young man went from bad to worse. One day he killed another man in a barroom brawl and soon found himself standing before a judge whose job it was to sentence him for that brutal murder. To the young man, now an older man's, utter amazement and complete relief. The figure wearing the robes was none other than the man who had saved his life so many years before. But when the sentence pronounced by that judge sentenced 
the man to the absolute penalty. He responded in shock and disbelief. How can you do this to me, the defendant said. Why you helped me before, why don't you do it again? To which the robed man replied, because then I was your savior. But today, I am your judge. Friends, if you have already taken hold of the saving grace that the Lamb has made possible, then I hope and pray that you will come to this table today joining your voice with the roar of praise that even now fills the heavens and that shall continue forever and ever. Amen. But if you have never joined that chorus, because you've never allowed what Christ has done, what the Lamb has made possible, to truly reorient your life, then I urge you to do so today. Don't let this moment pass. For the Lord, who is the Lamb, offering himself for your sake right now, will most assuredly one day be a lion. Be your judge and mine. Please pray with me. Gracious God, we give you thanks for the absolute assurance of forgiveness made possible by the blood of the Lamb. And we ask for the capacity where any of us have not yet received that free gift and responded with a lifestyle of gratitude. Oh God, we ask you to move by your spirit that we might do so today. For we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.